This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And with David Canfield. Hi. It is the day after the Oscar nominations. We would usually have had this conversation in the frantic 30 minutes after the nominations were announced on Tuesday. We did not record on Tuesday because all three of us were walking out alongside the rest of the Condé Nast Union. If you follow us on social media, you might have seen all about this. If you want to know more about the reasons for the walkout and why we felt really motivated to participate, you can go to CondéUnion.org and learn more about it. But we are back to work, and obviously, we're so excited to talk about the Oscar <laughs> nominations. The texts were flying furiously, even though Richard is still at Sundance and was technically supposed to be paying attention to new movies. Um, Richard, I won't tell anybody if you were uh, spending more time singing I'm Just Ken to yourself or however else you found a way to cope. <laughs> yeah, no, you. I have to sing to, to deal with the altitude, so. It <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a time-honored tactic. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot to talk about, and we are in kind of the unusual position of being able to have read all the takes uh, before making our own, which means I think the only place to start is with Barbie. Um, moments before we started recording, Hillary Clinton tweeted about uh, Barbie's snubs for Greta Gerwig and Best Director and Margot Robbie and Best Actress, which I think tells you everything you, you need to know about how far this has traveled. And I know that I'm speaking to the choir right now, the choir being our listeners, because we have been seeing the phrase Barbie snobbery week after week after week. I think all of us were very prepared for this outcome, but the culture at large was not, which I can't be totally surprised by. Not everyone listens to the show, though they should. Um, <laughs> but David, I think you also were a little surprised at the extent of the outrage about those two particular snubs. Maybe naively, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think that this is something that we on the podcast have been discussing about both of them for a long time. Uh with Margot Robbie, to be honest, when I first started thinking about Best Actress after the fall festivals, she wasn't even someone I was expecting to make the five. I think that there was a surge there that happened with like the SAG nomination and, and things like that. But that was just not a performance. And it's absolutely, you know, uh, nothing to do with how great she is in the movie. But it's a, it's a very broadly comic performance in a big comedy movie, which is there's a lot of hurdles uh, to the Academy recognizing something like that in a very competitive year. Uh, and then with Greta Gerwig, I mean, I don't, 
don't know what more I can say. Uh, you predicted Best Director 5 for 5 in our predictions. That's I Brad. did. I did. And I, you know, even if I didn't, Greta Gerwig was not number six on my list or number seventh. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't realize that. I think that Alexander Payne was probably a better position. And I honestly think even Celine Song is more to the tastes of the branch in terms of what she did with Past Lives, the fact that it was a Best Picture contender. They just don't like big commercial movies um, that make a lot of money. They're really snobby. And that's okay because it's not Best Picture. And it was nominated in Best Picture. And I will leave it there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a consistent you know, trend with this branch. And I don't think they're wrong. Those voters are wrong to prioritize specific kinds of filmmaking um, as opposed to bigger, broader, frankly, more commercial achievements. Well, I think the other thing about the director's branch is that they are more international um, in in recent years. Very deliberately so. They put a lot of work into making that branch more international. Exactly. And I don't know that Barbie necessarily, even though it is a universally or globally known brand, uh, I don't know that it had quite the same cachet uh, as it does in the U.S. Um, And yeah, so I think there were a lot of hurdles to Gerwig getting nominated in that category. And one of them, of course, is institutional bias. But um, I think that in this particular instance, uh, it has more to do with the kind of nettlesome technical details of the Academy uh, maybe than it does with um, something more like broader, you know, a social issue. Yeah, I think it's very easy to lump Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie together. We should also note that both of them are Oscar nominees. Ro- Margot Robbie is the producer of <laughs> mm-hmm. Barbie. She gets the Best Picture nomination. Greta Gerwig got nominated in screenplay. We can talk a little bit later maybe about how I think she is absolutely going to win now. Um, so the director's branch specifics we're talking about is a very like distinctive, fairly small and quirky branch. And then the actor's branch is really a kind of whole different process. They are the only ones who are selecting these nominees. The directors are the only ones selecting the directing nominees. It really is two entirely different groups of people. Mm-hmm. And I think the Margot question is interesting because Actors Branch is bigger. She got the SAG nomination, which I think made, you know, me at least, I think I think I said on the podcast, like I thought she was an um, outside chance for a nomination, but it gave me hope. Um, and then I wrote about Margot Robbie this morning before we recorded, kind of looking at past precedent, very specifically for the titular role, uh, quoting to quote Lady Bird, um, not getting nominated. And I really landed on Robert De Niro and the Irishman as a comparison to this. And um, stop me if you guys feel like I'm crazy. But I think sometimes when you have a very very big movie with a lot going on and a lot of really charismatic, big supporting performances, it is very easy for the lead character to get taken for granted as kind of the center of this swirling vortex of what's going on around them. And that really felt like it happened with De Niro getting snubbed. And I think there's different Mm -hmm. factors going on with Barbie, obviously, but that really felt right to me as a way that Margot Robbie's really fantastic work kind of got easily overlooked. Yeah, and, and Gosling and Ferreira have the feature roles. They have the big monologue in Ferreira's case, the big song in Gosling's case. And and Robbie is obviously on screen for most of the movie, but like and and her character is the title character is, is the titular character. But like I, I think that it's not by kind of design of a protagonist, it's not as flashy as um some of the people surrounding her. Um, and I think that had something to do with it. Uh, I did predict Robbie in our official predictions because I just kind of thought like the Barbie tide would kind of sweep across every category. But um, I, I, t- I understand fully why it didn't happen. Um, and like David said, also, it's the, the problem of, of, of it being a comedic performance. 
I think in the matters of both like Margot Robbie and uh, even Greta Gerwig, I think one thing you could compare is that they probably were not the top choices of enough people in those branches. And I think with Robbie, um, because of exactly what you're saying, Katie, she's not the person that you're going to be thinking of in terms of performers when you want to honor that movie. There was a lot of like is, um, you know, of course they're honoring Ken and they're honoring I'm Just Ken in a movie about Barbie and feminism. And it's like, yes, because that's kind of the strength of the movie. I mean, that's just the reality of what the movie is and where I think the most love for it went. It seemed to me to reflect the movie she made in a strange way, even if Margot is terrific in it. Yeah, I mean, something I said in my review of Barbie was that, like, it is kind of interesting that, like, Ken kind of gets the big standout moments in the movie. Um, and that's how it was written and directed. So, you know, that's kind of just how it played out. Well, it's also a movie about how the patriarchy damages men. I think that's one of the really brilliant um, touches mm-hmm. of Barbie is that you sympathize with Ken so much in the end of it. So, you know, I, I really don't want to quote like the most deranged Twitter takes, but I just think people being like, Ryan Gosling getting nominated and Margot Robbie not is exactly what Barbie is about. And it's about the patriarchy. It's like, yes, the Oscars have had a problem with women. Like we can acknowledge that, but I don't think that's what it is about. I don't think that's what Barbie is about or what these nominations are about at the same time. Yeah, But then then it becomes who, you know, th- th- this is still a category of five actresses. Like, it's not like they replaced her with a man. <laughs> and, <laughs> that would be a weird twist. <laughs> depending on how you look at it, you know, they altered the SAG lineup to nominate Sandra Huller, who was always going to get nominated. That's an incredible performance that, you know, demanded recognition from this body, in my opinion. Or you could look at somebody like Annette Benning. Um, who was nominated by SAG and the Globes and I think was stronger than I know I kind of let Twitter uh, influence me here, but I, I had assumed when I saw that movie she was a lock, and I think she probably was a lock in the end. Um, my thing about that is this is a very young category, and that mm. Benning is the only person, I think like over 45, over 50, certainly. Um, and this there's a lot of branch voters in the acting branch who are going to favor a veteran, and she mm. kind of assumed a lot of that. She had a lot going for her, her work with the union, her performance in Nyad, which apparently is a controversial thing. Um, but especially the physicality is something and, and the, the training is something that that branch is going to appreciate. You know, there's just a lot that goes into these nominations. It's not just like a vote against Barbie. It's that this was a pretty competitive category and Carrie Mulligan, Lily Gladstone and Emma Stone have been safe the whole time. So Yeah. I don't yeah. know how I don't know how much more we can say about it, but I I do. It's <laughs> we'll be important. talking about it for two more months. It's David, important. Don't worry. It is important to zoom out a little bit uh, and remember that Barbie got eight nominations mm-hmm. and that this was a competitive category, as was directing. Yeah, it's so competitive that Natalie Portman, doing I think perhaps the strongest work of a very strong career, also was not included. You know, yeah. um, this was just it was someone. What I wrote in my predictions was like, no matter who doesn't get in, it's an upset. You know, like mm-hmm. it, because it was just like there, there were so many strong contenders uh, in Best Actress. Um. Yeah, I guess before we move off of Barbie, I think we should maybe compare supporting actress to actress because supporting actress was competitive in a lot of different ways. And I think we are talking amongst ourselves about whether Penelope Cruz kind of comes in after that SAG nomination. Yet another year of wondering if Penelope Cruz can just upset the entire apple cart. Um, And before we were recording, we were saying how in our our group predictions, Hillary Busis predicted America Ferreira and the rest of us were kind of like, I don't know. Um, But I think the diffuseness of supporting actress, the idea that there were maybe seven or eight actresses who would have a lot of support as opposed to six for best actress, I think really made the difference there. Um, 
I was also saying before we recorded, I feel like America Ferreira could have gotten fewer overall top votes than Margot Robbie did and yet still made it in because of the spread of that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, this may be the first time I've ever said this, but I think that the Critics' Choice Awards had an impact. (laughs) Interesting. Well, her speech, her her, um, honorary speech. Not because they gave her a competitive award, but because she got to give it, she got the centerpiece speech of the night uh, for the See Her Award. And it was a tremendous speech. And I mean, how many acting branch members are in that room alone. I'm not saying a lot of people are watching uh, The CW. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But she had a lot, she had a big friendly audience and coincided with this really big push on behalf of Warner Brothers uh, to get her into that category. So I think this was a classic example of everything peaking at just the right time. If voting were two weeks earlier or two weeks later, I don't know that she would have gotten in. I think that a lot lined up at the right moment. This is a nomination that it's the biggest surprise of the day, and it feels like it's kind of just being overlooked in some ways because of all the focus on Greta and Margot. Mm -hmm. Um, But this shows that there was passion for the parts of the movie that stood out to me, because I think without the monologue, without the Academy really liking the monologue, which was obviously divisive to some extent, she would definitely not have been nominated. Yeah. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right>, nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Okay, maybe to go from supporting actress into other films that we want to talk about. Um, I, I do want to give Oppenheimer its time. I think we'll have lots of time to talk about it. But to to go back into snubs, Julianne Moore is missing here in supporting actress. Natalie Portman's missing in actress. Our darling Charles Melton is missing in supporting actor. I was so happy that May December got that original screenplay nomination. Um, <sighs> but what a bummer that all of our enthusiasm, <laughs> our power could only carry it so far, I guess. It's a real bummer. Yeah, it was. A, we, we, I think that we we've gone through the gamut on this podcast from Can, where May December premiered, on of being like, well, it's not the Academy's kind of movie, and then maybe fooling ourselves a little bit, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the Melton Train did seem kind of unstoppable for a while, and then it seemed to start 
to kind of slow down. And it was like, okay, so maybe he's actually not so much a lock for nomination. Um, but yeah, I think that like, I was talking about this with some people um, yesterday here at Sundance. And like, I, I think that the, the May-December thing uh, you know, this is not a new story for Todd Haynes. You know, uh, I think people might misremember and think that Far From Heaven got a Best Picture nomination and that Carol got a Best Picture nomination. Those movies did not. Uh, there has always been kind of a Todd Haynes problem at the Oscars. Uh, but I would argue mm-hmm. in a bigger sense, it's it's a it, there, the problem is that um, the, the, the Academy, uh, as it's been, you know, historically and, and even as it still is now, uh, has a problem with movies that have a sort of for lack of a less nuanced word, queer sensibility. And I think that May, December, uh, well, you know, you don't have to love that movie. It's not, you're not anti-queer if you don't like May, December, but like, I just think that movie for, uh, all the strengths I saw in it, for example, uh, other people see kind of weirdly as weaknesses. And, um, at least they were able to recognize that it's a very clever, sharp, probing screenplay, but, um, it just didn't have enough, uh, you know, people were not invested in it enough to vote for it elsewhere. Probably another case of like the different branch tastes, like thank God the writing branch came through for it. I don't know if it was fifth or fourth. I'd like to think that it was ahead of Maestro in that category even. Um, but I, I I think that after the film was blanked at SAG, uh, the actors made a statement, I think, is that the movie was really peaking then, that it was not mm-hmm. a movie for them, uh, despite um, how powerful and complex and interesting each of those performances are. So I do think it's a bit of a failure on the part of the branch and the the Actors Guild at large to not recognize any of them. But it is, I think Richard's completely right about the um, particular kind of queer sensibility that this movie has and not recognizing that. There's also an element of industry complicity uh, that is really... um, provocatively teased out in this movie Mm. that I don't know that they would have responded to. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I would say is that, you know, in the, in the online bubble to go back to the Annette Bening example, I think we had the impression that May, December was just this smash. Everybody was watching it. Everybody had an opinion. It did not make Netflix's top 10 movies when it came out, nor did Maestro even, nor did um, Rustin, but Nyad did. And so it's it's the movie that everyone's like, this movie exists, um, but it just can be hard to gauge uh, in the current social media ecosystem what actually is getting seen. Uh, and I think that it may also have been a bit of a, a visibility problem because I don't know how many Academy members went out of their way to see the movie. I mean, it is a reminder to me of the years that were really not so long ago where you'd be like, oh, well, this movie is great. It's a masterpiece. But of course, the Oscars will never go for it, which was just the common standard thing you would assume, I think, throughout all of our like youth as becoming Oscar fans. And even without May, December um, and some other good movies we can talk about, this is a phenomenal Best Picture lineup. Like they are mm-hmm. going for stuff that is challenging and smart and has critical support and May, December not getting in is a bummer, but it's just, it's so hard to be too angry about it when it's not like they're throwing it over for the Green Mile or something like that. Like there's they're still really focusing on what's good. Um, so maybe that's a silver lining to focus on. It's insane that the Zone of Interest has five Oscar nominations. I mean, that is <laughs> incredible. It it's is. just that movie is not anything close to what the Academy would recognize a decade ago. It is a pretty radical movie. It is, I think I've seen some some people say that it's like a movie you hang in a museum as opposed to like hmm. 
broadcast into multiplex. Like it is a really challenging and kind of deliberately alienating movie um, in a way that um, when I first saw it, I was, as I've said, I was both blown away by it and did not think that it would be able to make it through, at least to Best Picture. Um, I was proven very wrong. It, I mean, obviously by this point, it, the writing was on the wall, but it's just still remarkable that it it did as well as it did, even having craft like sound recognized and that campaign being really focused on that and paying off. For movies like that, it just it didn't used to happen. Yeah, Richard, I don't know if you've looked at, um, you know, our internal traffic, but your zone of interest review from Cannes is like really popping. I think people are really trying to figure out what the deal with this movie is. And it makes me wonder how much you saw any of this coming when you wrote that review. Oh, no. I mean, I assumed kind of like David did that this would be sort of, you know, a critical favorite of the year. Um, you know, Jonathan Glazer has only made four films, but he's kind of four for four uh, and uh, but has never really gotten this sort of you know, formal Hollywood industry attention. Um, I think that there is a, you know, unattend- uh, well, intentional and sort of unintentional timeliness to the movie um, that I think politically it might have resonated with, with voters um, given things that are happening around the world. I don't necessarily know that uh, everyone is seeing its political timeliness in the same way. To be honest, I think, you know, I guess it could be applied to two different sides of a particular conflict. But um, yeah, I think that it just it was well positioned. It sort of like did the can thing and then and then waited for a while and then sort of, you know, was kind of one of the later movies to come out in the year. And um, I think that A24 did a very diligent campaign for it. I think that you see that diligence paid off in the sound design nomination, um, which is such a huge part of the movie. And uh, but it's not, you know, some flashy blockbuster but I, I just think that they they made their case very well. Um, and I know that Glazer has been doing the rounds. I did a Q&A with him um, in New York. And, and uh, you know, he's just been sort of out there along with the actors. And um, it, it paid off. And I, I think it's exciting because, you know, like David said, this is not the kind of movie um, that the Academy typically recognizes. I guess if we're going to movies that kind of um, popped even more than we expected to, it makes sense to go from Zone of Interest to Anatomy of a Fall. As we expect, as we said, we expected it in Best Picture and Best Director. That Best Editing nomination is really interesting. Um, David, I feel like you pay attention to that category often. Um, does, what, does that tell you anything in particular? I mean, it's just so rare for international movies to get that nomination. Like, I think you could count them on one hand at least in the past like three decades and probably more. That's just what I was looking back at. Um, Parasite did it last. I think the last one before that was Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I mean, wow. it's just really, really rare. And it it means that they this movie was really widely seen, to be honest. I mean, that's the huge turtle with international films, non-English language films, is getting all of the different branches to see it in large enough numbers as happened with Zone of Interest in the Sound Branch, to fully consider it. Uh, and this happened for Anatomy of a Fall. It got in for Actress. They are also pretty hard on uh, non-English language performances, although that performance is mostly in English. Mm. Um, and they're very, very hard on... Um, they're very hard on movies that don't necessarily have the concurrent international film campaign, which at this point, rather infamously, Anatomy of a Fall did not have because France selected The Taste of Things, which was snubbed. Um, So I think it was a big question mark, but this was the movie in the same way we've talked, and I'm not saying it's going to win Best Picture, but in the same way we've talked about Parasite or Coda, this was the movie that over the course of 
phase one, going out, talking to voters that I heard about the most, not even a contest. It was very clear that this movie had spread organically on word of mouth. And the campaign can only take anything so far, especially when like Neon, which does have more limited resources, but they got the right people to see it in enough numbers where it just spread like wildfire from there. So I think it's really competitive in screenplay. I think that it it would be foolish to assume it cannot win anything because it has been seen enough. Mm-hmm. I think that the editing nomination and, and just its overall performance in the nominations, like that's convinced me it's winning screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very tempted to go into who we think is going to win every category, but I recognize we have months to go. So I resist <laughs> the temptation for now. Not months, uh, just two, Katie. Just, just two. <laughs> slightly less than two. Um, but to talk about overperformers, I think we got to go straight to American fiction then. Um, mm-hmm. I was delighted to see, um, I think I got five nominations total, including a score nomination that I don't know if anybody saw that coming. Although um, Kara Warner, our colleague, did an interview with Laura Cartman, the. Um, that Who VF wrote the bump. score? Yeah, and just right before voting ended. Um, but Sterling K. Brown popping up in supporting actor, I guess, kind of edging out both Charles Melton and Willem Dafoe for um, poor things. Um, I'm just I'm so excited for it. I really loved American Fiction. I think Cord Jefferson is such a star of this season, and he is. I might have said this before that like he's the exact model of like an original screenplay winner, like new, exciting writer. We love you. Um, but the screenplay categories are crazy competitive, so I don't know if it will work out there. But um, just what a great vote of confidence for that movie that I don't think anybody saw coming uh, right before until right before TIFF. Yeah, and it, it turns out that Amazon, old Amazon, like traditional Amazon Studios, didn't have any nominations because Saltburn was snubbed and and their doc plays didn't uh, make it through. So this was. Uh, a nice boost for the new Amazon MGM Studios that yeah. this movie, I think, was the first movie released under that banner of the Orion movies. And it, um, yeah, it did really well. So that was nice to see. Yeah. And like you said, Katie, normally we would see, you know, a Taika Waititi win, an Emerald Fennell win, uh, a Jordan Peele win in an original screenplay, you know, sort of like, hey, welcome to the club. Like, yeah. you new, exciting kind of outsider. Chords and Adapted, mm-hmm. um, which is a different category, but I kind of could see him being the top choice there for the for the same reasons that you know the people i mentioned just now won too you know um like i i think that that movie clearly you know i think sterling k brown getting in again shows that that movie has um pretty broad support uh and yeah i don't know i i think that uh it'll be an interesting night if Corey jefferson wins an oscar because a lot of uh, media people who live in brooklyn will be (laughs) Feeling lots of varied feelings. Not not chord's great. No one no one is upset about chord. It's just I think I'm I'm, I'm more speaking to an envy, I guess. Yeah. Uh, from I, us I, fellow bloggers. I'm sorry he beat you as the first Gawker, former Gawker writer to get an Oscar nomination, Richard. Next year is gonna be your time. Well, no, I, I actually go I co write all of Diane Warren's songs, so I've been nominated <laughs> many times. <laughs> Um, also, congratulations to um, to the Himbos. To shout out Rebecca, who is on maternity leave, but wrote a great piece for the piece for the magazine that's online now, talking about last year as the year of the Himbo and using uh, Sterling K. Brown in American fiction, as well as of course Ryan Gosling and Barbie and Mark Ruffalo and Poor Things, as examples of the trend. All three of them nominated against um, definitely not Himbo Robert De Niro and Robert Downey Jr. But good trend spotting, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, she did. She did good on that one. <laughs> Um, anything else overperform before maybe we get into some of the the other snubs? I mean, I suppose Oppenheimer did as well as it possibly could, given that it was not on the visual effects shortlist, which is what prevented it from tying the nominations record. It's extremely annoying. I just got to say, like, 
I think they're over it. They have plenty to celebrate, but I'm mad. Um, it's silly. It's just very silly because it <laughs> it should be in there. Uh, yeah. I can't believe I'm saying it should be everywhere, but definitely it should be in visual <laughs> effects from what I know of that uh, that work. But look, it's it, it did everything it needed to do and then some. Um, the other movie that overperformed was Napoleon, which yeah. I'm very here for. Uh, I think that those nominations were completely deserved. Uh, I think that because the reviews were mixed, it helped the campaign in a way focus really tightly on Below the Line and the like immense work of that production design. Um, the kind of fascinating um, costume <laughs> design. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, costume that, and production design matched up five to five for the first time in, I think, about 20 years. Yes. Um, which does not, yeah, that does not happen very often. Um, so th- that was that was a surprise. I think that that indicated that the, you know, again, the branches watched that movie <laughs> yeah. um, because that's what it comes down to so often. But it didn't make it in sound, which really took me by surprise. I thought surprise. that was so strange. Really and, weird. And nor did Ferrari, which I think was really underseen by the Academy. I think that was, I think like Penelope Cruz would have gotten nominated and I think mm. that it would have gotten into sound. As they say every year, they love Room Room uh, and sound. <laughs> so I, I honestly was so confident in that nomination and it did not happen. Yeah. Maybe I got to see the creator now and see um, see if it earned that spot. Oh, it's worth seeing. <laughs> okay. I, I I think it's not it's not a specific movie, but I think that um, my mindset this season has been like, ooh, Netflix kind of didn't really like nothing really stuck. But like they're what there's they have the second highest nominations total of any studio next to Disney, which you know has Searchlight uh, under their umbrella. And Netflix like it got in where it, where it wanted. You know, it, they, the the two Naya nominations, the Rustin nomination, Maestro getting in the screenplay, and like. It's both of its actors and Best Picture. Like Netflix, kind of sneakily did very well, yeah. Um, even though they didn't have the showiest uh, slate uh, of the season. Yeah, it's interesting what Netflix movies hit and which don't with the Academy because it, it felt somewhat inverted from you know people talking about May December so much to seeing Rustin and Nyad breakthrough in a way that that movie didn't. Um, the other thing I would say about the actors branch, one last thing, is that it's it's a you know they're still like pretty basic. Uh, they are, they're a lot more basic than other branches at this point. Um, like I was thinking about zone of interest and a lot of people had started predicting Sandra Huller for that movie as well, when it became quite clear that the movie was going to have a good day, which it did. Um, but you know, that would require them going, that branch going out on a limb that they don't, and they did not. Um, but it's just like a Netflix biopic, with an actor who's really well liked, a movie that is well made, um, and I think Naya particularly is is better made than it gets credit for, and with actors campaigning, uh, is a it's a stronger recipe than people give it credit for. A lot of people thought Domingo would miss. Certainly, most thought Benning would miss. Um, I think the fact that they made it through is is a commentary on on where the branch remains to some extent, even as the broader Academy gets a little bit artier um, and less predictable. Yeah, I, I think that the basicness of various uh, branches is is something that we can't <laughs> we can't ignore. Um, and if we want to shift to something that's not basic and is more in the snub world, uh, Netflix was definitely snubbed in documentary, mm-hmm. uh, where pe- people really thought that the John Batiste movie American Symphony would get in there. I think um, thought it would win. Not, yeah, yeah, and, and the documentary. 
The documentary branch is very, um, you know, they are among the snootier, let's say. Uh, And this year they really rejected um, celebrity-driven stuff. You know, the Michael J. Fox documentary still didn't get in. Um, Every documentary there is not American, I believe. Um, and, but yes. I think that American Symphony was a big, um, upset, I think for, for in, in that category and for Netflix. I mean, as I look at the nominations list, animated features right above it and they, um, left out Super Mario, which isn't a huge surprise. We've talked about Jack Black and also the Ninja Turtles movie, which I'm really, um, partial to in favor of Robot Dreams, which was a neon release that I actually haven't seen yet. Um, but then also the Netflix movie, Nimona, I don't know if either of you guys have seen it. It's really terrific and had a pretty, um, irrelevant theatrical release. So it was kind of a, a good and bad snobbiness that happened there. Yeah. Um, can I just use this moment to plug something? Um, if people listening to this are also aware of the podcast, Blank Check, on their Patreon, if you subscribe to that, Katie's son, Charlie, has recorded a <laughs> top 10 movies of the year list. And it's oh one of the most charming things I've heard uh, I heard in 2023. It's Or maybe it was came out in 2024. But anyway, it's really good. And I believe Nimona is mentioned in that. Nimona is am mentioned, I, I, indeed. Yes, right. Good yeah. taste. Uh, along with Elemental. Listen to youngest film critic, Charlie. Is, uh, is on, Wish on, on the list? Wish is on the list. I, I can't get into mm-hmm. it. It's a... Uh, there's, there's only so much you can do as a parent. Um, I was going to be mad at you promoting a, po- a podcast I think is much more uh, broadly listened to than ours, Richard. But if it's promoting me and my <laughs> household, then I can live with it. No, I would I would never promote David and Griffin otherwise, but, but I will promote Charlie. Yeah. Um, should we go to more snubs? What I mean, the movies that were just totally blanked. I think it really took me about an hour after the nominations to realize that all of us strangers was just kaput. Um, and David, mm-hmm. really, truly personal condolences there because I know that it did not take you. me an hour. I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it. Um, yeah, it was. I think the last hope was Andrew Scott after the Barbie category switch in screenplay because that was yeah. know, just it was going to be too difficult, especially with how strong Zone of Interest was, and that was actually a surprise nomination for that movie over Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, and then Andrew Scott didn't get into BAFTA. And I was like, well, that's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was quite it was quite straightforward for me. Um and that and I did end up predicting Coleman Domingo um just because he did get in at BAFTA and it just seemed like you know, I, I don't think this is quite in line with what Richard was saying about queer sensibility, but I do think it's interesting that for the first time ever this year we have two Queer performers playing queer characters nominated in Coleman Domingo and Jodie Foster for the movies Rustin and Nyad, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I like fine. It's mm-hmm. not a, it's not me, but, but they're not certain other queer movies that came out this year um, that are, in my opinion, uh, feature more, you know, rigorously drawn out queer themes, let's say. I mean, Christine Vachon getting her first uh, Best Picture nomination, first Oscar nomination, wildly overdue for Past Lives and Not May December is uh-huh. fascinating. <laughs> but like, uh, thank God that thank God it happened. Though. Yeah, I to mean, take nothing God. away from Christine Vachon. I, I would say Past Lives was probably ended up ten on that list uh, in that kind of women talking screenplay picture slot. So thank yeah. God it got in and she got that nomination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Past Lives having the exact nominations as women talking is really interesting. You know, Coleman Domingo and Jodie Foster join Ian McKellen, Ariana DeBose, and is that it ever in terms of out gay actors being nominated? Uh, there are more women, like Kristen Stewart. Um, there are a oh, few Kristen more. Stewart, of course, right? Yeah. But he, um, but he, Coleman particularly is the first man since Ian right, McKellen. Right, okay, and this is the first time that it's been 
that kind of, you know, combination, especially since they are playing queer characters. So that is, right. um, yeah, that's very significant. It's pretty major. Uh, Saltburn got blanked, which mm-hmm. I, I was talking to someone the night before who was like, Rosamund Pike could still get in. And I was like, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but what a, what a ride we went on with Saltburn. It still might wind up being <laughs> like that and Barbie might be the movies we're, we'll start, we are still talking about in 10 years somehow. This might this might be too much inside baseball, but I remember seeing Saltburn, um, you know, ahead of the fall festivals, like right before I left for Venice uh, and texting some people we work with being like, you guys think that's an awards movie? <laughs> <laughs> I remember those and texts. I, I had and I was, movie yet. And I was right. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I do. But I, I think that I, I thought I might be wrong because Saltburn did a, a very different thing in its release than I thought it would. It became this kind of, you know, phenomenon, both, you know, people sort of on our end of things, you know, were into it. And then the TikTok end of things was into it. And so it had this kind of strange life uh, and still continues to have a strange life. Like I was asking a friend yesterday, like, has SNL done a Saltburn sketch yet? Because I feel like it's it's ripe for that. Um, so it did look for a moment that Pike could get in, could get in or, or, you know, maybe some crazy Barry Keoghan thing would happen or a screenplay thing would happen. But um, yeah, I think all in all that movie just sat better as a, um, it has been nominated for awards, you know, just not Oscars, but I think it sat better as just kind of a a buzzy fall thriller um, that uh, caught a certain kind of attention that um, doesn't really align with Oscar attention. The line on that in the end was it would be Rosamund Piker's screenplay. And, you know, to what Mm -hmm. we were saying earlier about May, December getting in because of that branch being more discerning, like, there was no way they were going to nominate Saltburn for original screenplay. It just wasn't going to happen. The movie was too critically divisive, and they do not. There's a certain threshold you have to meet with the writer's branch, I think, to get in, in the same way they snubbed the whale last year. So, I mean, this is this is, this is is a case where I wonder what kind of spin will follow in terms of it. You know, Amazon had very high awards hopes for this movie, and I think that was always a bit misguided. Um, and I say that as someone who had a great time at the Telluride premiere, mm. but I just it, 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 the challenges were really, really strong, and it did get a lot of BAFTA nominations. Although its screenplay didn't even get in there, it really only got into juried categories at BAFTA. So it was not it was not that much of a thing in the end, I don't think. And um, it's great that it did make money, that Amazon put it out in theaters mm-hmm. and um, it did well. Like, I think it's a success story in that respect. But the the way it was launched at Telluride uh, didn't never quite made sense to me. I just didn't think that was the right kind of audience for it. It did not go over well. And it just seemed it was very tumultuous. I certainly believe that Rosamund was in it at some points. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I was fully confident it wasn't getting any nominations. But this is one with the benefit of hindsight, missing SAG completely. It was probably a good distance behind, especially since some of its craft stuff actually, I think, was really worthy and it didn't get any nominations. I think if we had had a different Saturday night at Toronto, where Saltburn and the Iron Claw premiered. Oh, I, I, th- I think we'd be having different conversations about Oscar nominations. You know, I, I think that Saltburn was weirdly positioned, like you said, David. And um, I, I don't know necessarily that a big blow the roof off premiere at Toronto, which it would have been very mm-hmm. well received. Huge. There. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that necessarily would have changed its awards fortunes, but it would have positioned the movie differently because it kind of was this Telluride slight disappointment that then, um, you know, had this other sort of viral life. But, you know, so I wonder if, if premiering a week later would have would have changed that. To the Iron Claw point, because I'm glad you brought that movie up because a lot, you know, a lot of people really 
fell for that movie these this last over the past month, the movie wasn't done. Uh, and no, so the, it wasn't. Yeah. The the question is, should they have held it? Um, and I think that's a you know that's an interesting conversation to have because it's one of A24's biggest box office successes ever. Yeah, and it really did do exactly what they hoped it would as in terms of like Christmas pa- counter programming and things like that. However, I do think that uh, if it had a bit more runway, it could have it could have d- popped in a few places. It really mm-hmm. did seem to gain enough steam, but it was just way too late. Yeah, you wonder if the Past Lives path for Iron Claw would have made sense because A24 had Past Lives already when it premiered at Sundance last year. Um, but maybe they would take the Iron Claw box office over to Oscar nominations in the end. I can't predict how they would do it. But we had a good number of listener questions <laughs> yeah. about Iron Claw specifically because yeah. people have seen it. A24 won every single Oscar last year. So maybe they were like, we're, 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 <laughs> we're good, good this year. We're, <laughs> we'll take yeah. the cash. I mean, they made a lot yeah, of money yeah. with everything everywhere, too. So they're yeah, fine. That's true. Yeah. Um, but David, you brought up the SAG ensemble stuff earlier. And we should talk about the color purple, which wasn't blanked. It got the Danielle Brooks nomination. Um, but Thank I think, God. Did, yeah, David, you kind of <laughs> described that as like basically by the skin of her teeth, because truly, you know, the movie was just absent everywhere else. I mean, we've talked about it a lot. We I think we kind of understood how this happened. But um, I imagine there's a lot of disappointed people, too. Yeah, um, I think that this was a strange case. I mean, I think it was the AFI that was the first, you know, indication. And I should mention, uh, I I get on my soapbox about the AFI's top 10 movies of the year list. Yet again, (laughs) they did not miss a single American Best Picture nominee. So next year, when they release their top 10, pay close attention to it. They have not missed in at least three years. Um, and they were the ones who told the story that The Color Purple was weaker than we thought. And PGA lineup was 10 for 10, we should say. Although I don't know yes. if that'll happen again. That rarely happens. I mean, but clearly they've evolved because they actually recognize international movies, which they don't usually do. Uh, like they didn't even nominate All Quiet on the Western Front, which was a huge contender. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, the, the, the situation with The Color Purple, I, I actually found quite strange because, you know, and I, I often say, don't pay too much attention to, you know, buzz at those early industry screenings where everyone's giving standing ovations and everyone starts, you know, hyping it up as this huge contender. But in this movie's case, and you can talk to people who went to some of these or moderated Q&As, I mean, the response was electric um, in a way that I don't think many movies matched. Um, it had already flatlined before flatlining at the box office, so you can't blame it on that. The reviews were pretty strong. I came out of that movie, uh, and I saw it with Rebecca, and we were both like, it's it's got some problems, but it feels like something that would play. Um, but quite clearly, it just didn't play. And I mean, that, that seems to be a really clear uh, story with this movie, is it did not resonate. They gave it a good push. Um, the actors were everywhere. It had, the strike had ended at kind of the perfect time for that movie's rollout. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, I am just really relieved that Daniel Brooks, who gives a wonderful performance in that movie, made it through. Because that, you know, people who do not follow the Oscars as closely are going to look at that list. And, you know, she popped up everywhere and fully assume America Ferreira was fifth. And I'm pretty confident Daniel Brooks was not... As strong there as people think, because the movie just fell off so um, tremendously. Uh, and usually, if you're not Jodie Foster or somebody who the Academy really knows and loves, it's very difficult to hold a campaign on your own. The problem that I had with the movie, the Color Purple movie, um, is that it feels supplemental to yes. the book and and to the 1985 film. And I kind of wonder if maybe that was 
you know, various branches of the academy's thinking was that like, well, you know, granted it was, you know, almost 40 years ago, but like been there, done that, you know, we, we've already nominated the color purple for best picture and, you know, all these other awards and like this new one, yeah, it has music and it's different actors and whatever. But like, I, I, I don't know. I think maybe that it just felt like a retread in a way that, um, uh, just didn't, there was so much new fresh stuff, um, this year that it just couldn't compete with that. Also, the Broadway production was so popular, and I think especially yeah. the revival was very strong, and I think that probably hurt it as well. Although well, probably helped were, Danielle Brooks because she gave this, she played yes, the same role on Broadway. I think that is really interesting, but I think there were probably some unfair comparisons made for people who had seen both. Uh, not unfair, sorry, um, un, um, uneven comparisons. Yeah, comparisons that did not favor the film, um, and and. To your point, Richard, I think you're totally right. It didn't do what West Side Story did. It didn't do what Spielberg did to re-energize that property. And even in a way where that movie completely tanked at the box office in a way Color Purple didn't, but there was enough respect for it and enough passion for it where it could pop up in a lot more places. I'm just going through the Wikipedia page for supporting actress and trying to figure out the only the other like only supporting actress nominations for a film, which is just a real wild ride through Oscar buzz. I think the last person to do it was Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. Um, exactly. That's a whole thing. And then before <laughs> that, uh, Kathy Bates for Richard Jewell. Um, just you could go on. You could have a fascinating uh, podcast. But just about I think those. even Hillbilly Elegy got makeup. I'm pretty sure. Oh, did it? Okay, it's hard. Um, to Helen Hunt Wikipedia. for the sessions, maybe. I think she might have been the yes. one. Yes, which yeah, that's yeah. There's just some fascinating. Um, so two Oscar winners and a, and a longtime nominee. <laughs> Hillbilly Elegy did get mess makeup. So Kathy Bates for Richard Jewell. You now have company and Danielle Brooks. I mean, honestly, so only Oscar winners. Basically, uh, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, Kathy Bates is great, and Richard Jewell got nothing against it. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) So as we get toward the end of this, I think there's three Best Picture nominees we haven't really talked about yet. The Holdovers, Poor Things, and Killers of the Flower Moon. And I don't know what we want to say about them. I think they all pretty much performed as expected. And there's an interesting conversation to have about what they could win. Um, But did any of those three pop in a way that you did or didn't see coming? I think Flower Moon not getting in in screenplay was interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, there Especially are some rumors. after Lily Gladstone missed BAFTA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some rumors floating about why the screenplay branch did not uh, nominate that movie, but uh, those are probably, be- that's a conversation better had off air. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think Flower Moon, I, I thought that it was kind of a, a, a strong competitor to Oppenheimer but not getting in screenplay, I'm like, oh, so Oppenheimer's definitely winning Best Picture. <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah, 
Um, I think that I think that that will win a, a big award. Flower Moon will uh, in Gladstone, but um, uh, yeah. And I think that holdovers. You know, Alexander Payne didn't get into director, but I don't know. I don't think that diminishes its chances. No. Um, I think it probably is going to win two acting awards. Um, and I also think that, you know, to David has had a theory for months now about the holdovers being a best picture contender. And I still think that could be in play um, mm-hmm. for various reasons. Interesting. Oh, David, yeah. I think next week we're going to hold your feet to the fire on that one. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Oppenheimer is winning at this point, but I would still put holdovers at number two. I don't think pain missing directing means anything just mm. because of how strong directing was this year and, and how that branch tends to operate. I th- I think that Lily Gladstone could lose. Um, I think the best actress is extremely competitive uh, with her and Emma Stone. There's a lot of love for poor things. These voters vote for what they love. And I wonder if we'll start having the conversation again at some point in phase two about the fact that Lily Gladstone is not the dominant performance in that movie. Mm-hmm. She's not the she's not the most she doesn't have the most screen time. Uh, it is borderline supporting, uh, which was why we were uh, we had a mixed reaction to when she decided to campaign as a lead actor. Um so I guess we'll see, because I, I that is the only reason I can think of as what as to why she would not win. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that clearly Emma Stone coming off of that Critics' Choice win, which is a consensus win, does mean something, even if it has no overlap in membership. And Flower Moon missing in a few areas. DiCaprio also not nominated for Best Actor. Yeah, I I think that's a little bit more up in the air than we previously thought. I I would still probably bet on Gladstone right now, but I I mean. To me, it's almost 50-50. I think there's a world where Poor Things is one of those movies that gets a ton of nominations that doesn't win anything. But don't you think you know? that could be Flower Moon, too? Yeah, I was just going to say <laughs> the same thing. Well, I think well, both. And, that's, and that's, that was The Irishman's Fate, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. uh, and, and actually, I think the... Uh, no, not The Aviator, because Blanchett won. But like, I think that's happened with Scorsese before. Gangs um, of New York was the other one. Yeah. Gangs of New York, thank you. Yes, exactly. Oh, Cameron Diaz won, though, so actually. <laughs> well, In a walk. They, used to, they used to have that best Irish accent category. <laughs> and, um, really controversial, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could talk about the holdovers a yeah, bit, yeah. though. I mean, it, it's probably going to win two acting awards. That seems like it's on its path. I think we'll see. Giamatti, I, I think G, well, I think Giamatti will win SAG. I think Killian Murphy will win BAFTA. So I think that that that's right. You said that will like be maintained. Yeah, oh, I think that's. While we're on the topic, I know that last week I very erroneously called Killian Murphy British. Oh yes, I know he is Irish. I was confused by the fact that he was in Peaky Blinders and Twenty Eight Days Later. Uh, I apologize for the error. Yeah, we got, um, we got a couple of listener emails. I had got to say everyone yeah. was so nice after calling us out on our bullshit. So thank you all. I don't know if we deserved <laughs> yeah, it. No, yeah, that no, nice. I, yeah, I, I felt I felt kindly chastised. <laughs> uh, thank you very much to the nation of Ireland. Yeah. We will not let you down again. Yes. Iota Beery forgives you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so and it also got into editing, which is not nothing. Yeah. Uh, that pre Birdman. Or was Birdman nominated for editing? And that was I think it insane. was not. Yeah, but anyway, used to be kind of pre-coda, let's say. It used to be a real, if you don't get in here, you cannot win Best Picture. Um, and I think there's still a lot. I think it's still very difficult. Um, and the fact that the holdovers got in, despite you know some people complaining about its runtime, shows that there's a lot of respect for the movie. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's still in there. Um, if anything... 
uh, it ha- there's a new movie that has kind of assumed that spot, and I think that's American fiction. There's clearly a lot of love for that movie. Yeah. It is the holdovers in the Amer- in American fiction. I know like one's a period piece and one's not, but they just seem to live in the same universe of like Boston adjacent academics kind of grumbling their way around. It's it's yep. funny to think of them as a pair. Also kind of, you know, the, the, the phrase that has been bandied around with holdovers a lot, movies that they don't make anymore. But I think with both mm-hmm. of them, they hearken back to a style of filmmaking and a quality of filmmaking that is just harder to get through certain studio systems. So it's it's really nice to see them both here and, and thriving. Yeah, American fiction, um, you know, is sort of James L. Brooksy. Yeah. And yep. uh, the the Academy used to love him. So mm-hmm. With good this reason. Is continuing that If they still loved yeah. him properly, they would have nominated Rachel McAdams for Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. But I'll just it, hold it just that for feels yes. like it's going to win something. I mean, adapted screenplay is so competitive, but it, it does feel to me that there is enough surging for that movie. I think I brought it up on Little Gold Men Live that in the voting window, that was the movie that I heard about the most. You know, it really, really has a lot. Of, there's a lot of love for it. Yeah, I think. And I think some voters want to spread wealth, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and so this movie gets this category and the other gets the other one. And I think screenplay, a, a movie about writing. Uh, it kind of stands to reason that it, 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 it's a strong competitor there. I think we're going to have a really interesting time talking about adapted screenplay um, in the coming yeah. in the coming weeks. Um, to wrap us up, I I think we're moving into a little bit of a quiet period. David, you usually know the schedule better than me. The nominees luncheon isn't until February 12th. The SAG Awards are at the end of February. Um, and then you'll start getting Andy Spirits and PGA and everything else. Um, so everyone can take a bit of a breather before we jump back in, I think. Well, we're we're going to do extensive coverage of the Super Bowl, of course, on this podcast. <laughs> and the Grammys, of course. The Grammys uh-huh. are coming around. I mean, look, I always wind up watching the Grammys, even when I think I won't. So, A friend of mine who's a culture editor at The Guardian um, has basically, he's like, I, ha- I have to do live blogs every Sunday for the next two months. Yeah. <laughs> like, between all that stuff. But yes, but Oscars wise, it's a little quiet, which is good. Yeah. Well, we will be back next week. We have a lot of listener questions to get into. We want to talk about Sundance also. Richard, you're calling in from Utah. Yeah. By next week, we'll know some of the winners of the festival. We'll get a, definitely a sense of the titles from there we'll be talking about for the next year. Um, in the meantime, find us at Vanity Fair on social media at VF Awards Insider. We've got lots of Oscar coverage on the site, of course. Um, and we're on our own on social media. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And the award for best credit to our producer, Brett Fuchs, for turning this episode around so quickly goes to Katie Rich. Congratulations to um, to the himbos. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.